DIY and How Studios presents You must take the A train Vinyl Snob with Dave Whitaker Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts Music, culture, technology. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. And rock and roll. Now, let's drop the needle and start the show. I'm Dave Whitaker, and this is Vinyl Snob. And once I got a look at it out here, I just decided to move here. So in 1988, I, I got a U-Haul for my records. <laughs> I actually needed a U-Haul for the records by that point. That's Mike Lavella, writer, publisher, and avid record collector. I noticed there was a rock and roll car crossover happening, but it wasn't being documented. so. I got the idea to do Gearhead Magazine. On this episode, we have the second installment of our series, Confessions of a Vinyl Addict. Plus, we take a field trip to Delta Breeze Records. So when does collecting records go from a casual hobby to an obsession? And how does one start on and make that journey? Producer Dana Berry has part two of his series, Confessions of a Vinyl Addict. Welcome back to Confessions of a Vinyl Addict. I got a tip from a friend of mine about someone I should interview. Someone whose reputation in the Bay Area vinyl community is as respected as a sealed first pressing. Mike Lavella was a writer for Maximum Rock and Roll and Thrasher. Started the punk rock hot rod magazine Gearhead and the subsequent garage punk record label and is now the organizer of a monthly Now Playing Night. He's also a lifelong record nut whose collection could crush a car. I visited Mike in his retro mod apartment in a 150-year-old former plating and stamping factory. He took me through the former stock room of his record label, up a staircase, and into a large living room where one long wall was supported by his record collection. Amongst his collection of novelty kitsch eye candy, I let the tape roll and listen to Mike recount the past and the path that led him down that slippery slope to vinyl addiction. Mike Lavella, Oakland, California. Uh, I'm 53. I started collecting records when I was eight, seriously. Uh, I mean, you know, I had been given records by my family, but when I was eight, I became aware of, like, if I save up my money, I can buy them. And that's when it started. I'm from Hermony, Pennsylvania. I lived there for the first 18 years of my life. It's a small uh, coal mining town in Western PA. It's about 30 miles outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, famous only for the fact that uh, jazz great Sonny Clark was born there. And when I was 18, I moved to Pittsburgh, PA, and I was in uh, punk bands. I was very, very involved in the punk scene. And then I was uh, in a band called Half-Life for five years, and I played bass. And we, we made a, you know quite a few records and stuff over the years and toured. and. Um, Actually, it was on the 1987 tour. We came out here and uh, played at Gilman, like the first year it was open. And once I got a look at it out here, I just decided to move here. So in 1988, I 
I got a U-Haul for my records because <laughs> I actually needed a U-Haul for the records by that point. But I got my first job at Bay Area Records and Tapes. The big job you had there when you worked at Bay Area Records and Tapes was you, you wiped records down. He had these bottles with whatever that formula is of you know ammonia versus water, you know, to like clean records, and we would spray them and wipe them. And I was so ambitious to get through them to find. And of course, I was finding like stuff for me the whole time <laughs> I, was I was finding like uh the wipers like all my wipers lps came from that era and like funkadelic records i needed and that was that was good for records i mean but it was terrible for money you know and i was spending probably a lot of what i made on records and then shortly after that i um i got a job in record distribution and i started doing that for a while and that was better paid but and then simultaneously i started writing for maximum rock and roll it was tim yohannan uh, who invited me in 1987 when Half-Life was playing at Gilman, Tim Yohannan said, you know, he was smoking, you know, he was like, yeah, if you can, he said, if you can write as good as you can talk, you know, I, I can give you a job, you know, and it, like sucking on a palm oil, you know. So out of that, Mike started writing for Maximum Rock and Roll and Thrasher. But how and why did he start his own magazine? I noticed there was a rock and roll car crossover happening. I mean, you had Gas Huffer and the Super Suckers had Hot Rod Rally and all these, you know, people were starting to, the New Bomb Turks had a song called Drag Strip Riot. There was, it was happening, you know, but it wasn't being documented. So I got the idea to do Gearhead Magazine. And then the reason it came with the record, so the first 10 issues of Gearhead had a 45 in it. And the reason that, that I did that was because I was working in record distribution. And I thought, well, I don't really know how to sell a magazine, but I know how to sell a record. So if I put a record in here, I can go through all the normal channels of record distribution. Cool. Flexi discs. No, no, they're, they're, they're hard vinyl singles that have a picture sleeve that's inside the magazine, which came in a bag. So I had to spend all this extra money to preserve the integrity of the record. But because there were there were some magazines at the time where somebody would do like a hard vinyl seven inch, you know, and then they come in that generic white sleeve and they would like staple it into the magazine. Well, it's inevitably it's going to get mauled. I mean, like not only the record, but the magazine, it's going to bend. The, so I thought, how can I do this? So I made a, I made the magazine with a 100 card, 100 pound cardstock cover. So it would have some firmness. Then there was the record, you know, with like a, you know, the label. You know, like, you know, a legitimate 45 big hole in case people had a jukebox. I was very wary of that, you know, and then a picture sleeve and then a bag. And then that's inside. It was like free floating inside the magazine, which also came in a bag. I can't, whatever profit I ever would have made was certainly eaten up on bags. So then in 2000, I decided that pressing like 13,000 singles was crazy because who knew even how many people had turntables at that point that were buying the magazine? So I decided to split it. Then I did uh, eight more issues of the magazine without records and then started a record label. And I did that from 2000 to 2006. I put out 55 records. Um, uh, between that time, I had the Hives on my label. I put out the first four Hives records in America, which is probably the, you know, the thing it's most noted for. So now we turn the discussion more towards collecting records. With my collection, for, for years, like you struggle, struggle with the term like record collector, like am I that or am I just a lover of music? I realized I was a record collector when, when Discogs came out, when the, when the website came out, because I went through my whole collection and I kind of put it up there largely originally 
there's two things like a just to really figure out what what do i actually have here there's so many records but and it ended up being i'm like i don't know thirteen thousand records i put up initially or something like thousands and thousands and it took years to really you know grade them and put them up but you can use that for insurance coverage like if some you know so actually i have renter's insurance i have i have my records insured like i i really do i couldn't sleep if i didn't they're worth I mean, nobody was more shocked than me. It's coming right. It's about a quarter of a million dollars, you know, and what I paid for them is, I don't know, $200 or something, you know, because they were, they were mostly given to me or promoted or certainly when I published the magazine, you got promos, you got, and then friends have labels and they give you that or you trade or you, you know, and then with Discogs, I went through everything. The things I didn't want, I sold. 100% of the money from selling records went to buy records I did want. So I never have to tap into like my paycheck to buy. I mean, I, I have never like, you know, went to work, made money and used any of that money to buy a record ever. All right. This is starting to piss me off because I have spent so much money on records. But Mike, well, he's a professional collector. You know, when you sell stuff on, on eBay or Discogs, it goes to PayPal and they have a credit card you can get, PayPal card. And that's, that's what I use when I buy records. So again, if I'm in a store... I'm using money 100% that generated from the selling of other records, you know, and then I go through the, the collection all the time. And like, I, you know, if it's a situation of, well, I haven't heard this for 30 years. Oh, then you look it up. Oh my God, it's 200 bucks. Of course I sell it. Like if I don't, you know, I don't even remember what it sounds like. I probably don't love it that much. Unfortunately, over the years, I've had to sell a lot of the, especially like the hardcore punk stuff just to pay rent and stuff. A few times I've played it and like, oh my God, this is great. And kept it. But generally speaking, once, once I decide to let something go, I just let it go. Mike's part of a great group called Now Playing. If you haven't checked him out, check him out. We have our group, you know, we have our Facebook group called Now Playing and uh, people is what there's 30,000 people in it now I think you you know when you're playing a record you take a picture of it and then you post it and then people talk about the record um which is really useful because there's like a hive mind thing going on there too where if you don't know what pressing it is or and then people can tell you so much about the band the person and then even to the point where it's even like that that my uncle was in that band or crazy things like that have, have come up and then so we have now playing night and it's the second Wednesday of every month and we just had our 20th one and i've done every i'm the only person of course that's done every one i mean i've i've done it with bronchitis i moved like uh i moved the date of moving my mom into an old folks home so i could do it you know I, i'm 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 nuts like when i commit to something that's that's it but all these people come out and they're just they have these amazing record collections and then they'll do themes they'll have like you know you know glam all glam tonight all pub rock tonight all uh, new wave of British heavy metal, all all country, all you know, all soundtrack. And you want to talk about geeking out? Like someone will play a record, and people will like run up with their phones and take pictures of the record while it's playing because they're just like, "Oh my God, you have that on vinyl," you know. And but but it's but it's not competitive at all. It's it's really like a geek out, you know. Like it's just people are getting together to play their records, and it's records. Like you you know, you would die before you would show up with a CD or or something, you know, or or an iPod. I mean, it's it's all it's so vinyl centric you know and then people get into wood press and then like sometimes like someone will play a record this, this has happened more than once someone will put on a record and people jump up like oh my god and they, then then like the halfway to going to look they'll go it's a repress then everyone will go sit down <laughs> like like it's like they have the chance to see a real one you know in the end it's just wanting to play our records for people in public that brought everybody together you know so it's been that's been great so i had to ask the obligatory holy grail question and of course he had one 
but it was not what I was expecting. The record I want more than any other record in the world, Alan Sherman, uh, <laughs> the, the Jewish comedian of Hello Mata, Hello Fada fame. He, I have everything he ever did. I have all his albums, but he made a record for the Scott Paper Company called Music to Dispense With that was given out only to employees of Scott Paper Company. And it's so rare. And I have it, they included it on the box set on the, and it's, it's hilarious. It's like, you want to talk about a challenge, like the corporation hired him to write songs about paper cups and stuff. And he did. And it's just like, I've never seen it. Uh, there are record stores from here to certainly Pittsburgh to in Florida to uh, last year, I um, just got my Mustang and I drove up to Red Deer. Uh, Manitoba, which is north of Calgary, and I hit every I hit record stores the whole way. And I just went to I spent you know everything you know Portland, Tacoma, everywhere I went, Spokane, just hit and I timed it so that I would be in town you know at 11 a.m. when record stores open and I could shop it. Then I'd drive in between to the next major city. Like my whole trip was record store based, and everywhere I went, I wrote that down. Like Alan Sherman, music to dispense with my name. My email address, my, I'm like, if you ever see this record, I'm like, this is your one chance to ream somebody. Like, if you call me up and you'd be like, you know what? Got to charge you 500, man. You know, I, I will come up. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm that. I, I want it so bad. I, I, don't, I don't know why, really. Okay, so is finding a record through Discogs anywhere near as satisfying as finding it while flipping through stacks? If it had been on my want list for a long time, and it's some record that says, it shows you how many people want it and how many people have it. And if it's some record where it's like, you know, three people have it, one person, want, you know, and I'm the only one, you know, and it's it's never for sale, never for sale. And then finally someone has one. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, yeah, I do. Like, it, it's not, of course, nothing is as great as flipping through a crate and you're like, oh my God, is that, you know. One time at the, the flea market in uh, Berkeley, you know, at, uh, at the Ashby BART station. One time I was there with Tim Kerr from, you know, the big boys and et cetera, et cetera. And he was in town and we were over there and I was just going through records and under, I needed, I was trying to get every Funkadelic record and I had almost every one, but misfiled under the band America was a copy of America Eats Its Young. And then this guy had Funkadelic records. He And they were all like, $20 or $30, but then America Eats It's Young was $1 because he thought it was an America, the band America record. And I was just like, what? You know, you're flipping, you see, you're like, Duh! you know, like, then you're, you know, you're sweating as you're handing the guy the dollar, you know, because you're like, oh, he's going to figure this out. He's going to see Funkadelic. You know, you kind of have your hand over the word Funkadelic, you know, or whatever, you know, so there, there's been things like that. And then you're just like, oh my God, you know, like, and then like, do I feel bad about that? No, because I, I, I treasure that damn record. Like, it's never never leaving the collection. I played it a hundred times, you know, funky dollar bill. I spent a funky dollar bill on that record. Thanks to Mike Lavella for a great afternoon, hanging out in his pad, listening to music and talking vinyl. Let's hear a few final thoughts on what it's all about. My, my friend Spar recently said, what's the end game? He's like, where are you going with this? You don't have kids. You don't have, I'm like, I don't know. Uh, you know, so I recently actually started saying like, I'll leave you this. Like my, so, you know, my, my cousin Bobby, his daughter, Marissa likes the Beatles. And I said, well, I, I will leave you my Beatles records. And, you know, like my cousin Jamin loves Nick Cave. And I'm like, I will leave you my birthday party. Right. You know, I'm actually making a list of who gets what now, you know, and they're going to end up with stuff. You know, I doubt there will be a museum. It'll probably be, the collection will probably get broken up, but hopefully it'll go to the people that appreciate that 
artist the most. I don't. What else can I do? I'll be dead. You know? <laughs> I don't want to be buried with any of them or anything crazy like that. Maybe throw an eight-track tape in there or something, you know, for for the comedy appeal. If I have an open casket, you know, throw like a you know some trucker, some truck stop eight-track in there. So that that would keep me happy for eternity. You know. <laughs> for vinyl snob, this is Dana Barry. Dana Barry is a writer and musician who filed his story from his studio in Oakland, California. If you'd like to see pictures of Mike's record collection, check out the Episode 9 page at VinylSnob.com. On this episode, we have a new twist to our Used Bin segment, as we take you on a tour of our favorite used record stores. Starting out in my own backyard, with Delta Breeze Records on 10th between Q&R in downtown Sacramento. Co-owner, Rick DePrado. The store's been here about a year and a half. We started out in West Sacramento on Jefferson, and we were there about three years, and we moved here about a year and a half ago. We sell all types of records, vinyl records. Uh, we sell cassette tapes. We have a few CDs. They're all a dollar a piece. We sell about one a month. Nobody wants CDs now. Uh, and we sell equipment, a lot of uh, vintage equipment, and uh, my partner works on the equipment, so... Uh, we also repair the equipment, but we sell speakers, turntables, receivers, amplifiers, preamps, but mostly the vintage equipment. A lot of our records come through the door here, uh, but you know, I have always enjoyed finding records. I go, I go everywhere. You know, I go to the Bay Area. I go to estate sales and every thrift shop and even other record stores. Uh, you know, I just, I search them out. But a lot, it's kind of amazing how many records come through the door since we moved. I think it's a kind of a thriving area. We're just a half a block off the gentrified high rent district here. This is a low rent building, but it's it's surprising how many come through the door still. You would think records are, are kind of hot again, so... Uh, you would think, you know, people would sell, mostly sell them, you know, good records on eBay or Discogs or, you know, through the internet. But a lot of people, I guess, are, you know, maybe they're they are in a hurry for the money or they're too lazy to sell them because they do command pretty high prices on the Internet now. You're appealing to people all over, you know, all over the world so you can get a higher price. But a lot of them, yeah, they come through the door. It's it's funny. I, you know, having owned stores in the 70s and 80s, I saw the demise of you know, the vinyl record, I thought, you know, in the 80s, everybody brought their collections to me and said, I'm going CD, you know, and I told them all, every one of them, I, I, you should probably, like, keep a lot of these. And uh, a lot of them were my friends. They had become my friends over the years, customers. And, and now I have a lot of them coming back saying, I sold you all my records in the 80s, you know, and now, and now they're collecting again. But uh, it was interesting. I, I got really kind of disgusted sad in the 80s and so I went on a vacation uh, to Western Europe and I went to Spain and I noticed that records were just amazingly hot in Spain this was 1988 so I decided I found what I thought was a perfect location in Valencia Spain came back and and planned on selling my shop and wanted to move to Spain I in fact I even took my ex-wife over there and we had two boys and, you know, one, tried to get her to move over there. But she said, uh, 
uh, you know, the boys don't want to move to Spain. Plus, I had to deposit $100,000 in a Spanish bank to do business there as an American. So I was about 90000 short. So I kind of gave up on that idea. But then all of a sudden, it was like it just dawned on people that they could get uh, digital music, you know, MP3s downloading. And, but it was all digital. So then people kind of realized, gee, I, I kind of like the sound of my old records, you know. Plus, I think a lot of it's sort of a nostalgia thing and it's 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 the process of you know taking it out of the jacket reading the jacket looking at the artwork i think people are comfortable most comfortable with the, with the technology that they grow up with it's surprising how young people have really embraced uh, the vinyl record you know that technology i uh, half of my customers are more than half are young people my son i would always get into his car and he'd plug his phone in and put on some downloaded music from his iPhone or whatever. And I would always tell him, Dante, this sounds like crap. This sounds like absolute crap. No, no, Pop, it sounds good. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't sound good. I mean, <laughs> you know, there is a difference. The sound of good speakers with a good amplifier or receiver with a decent cartridge on a turntable, there really is a difference. Yeah, it's kind of like rock and roll. You know, I remember when rock and roll came out, basically, and I remember my parents and grandparents hating it. And I remember the pundits or everybody saying, oh, yeah, rock and roll, that's that's going to be gone soon. You know, we'll have we'll have Mitch Miller back in no time, you know, but um, it never went away. It's, you know, it's as big today or bigger than, you know, than it ever was. Records came out. Uh, the vinyl records, they went from the shellac, you know, 78s to the vinyl records, just about the time that rock and roll came into existence. Um, records kind of grew up with rock and roll. So I, I think it's kind of like rock and roll. It's just, yeah, I don't think they're going to go away. I'm sure, you know, hundreds of years, they'll probably be gone. But definitely through my lifetime, I think records are, are here to stay. Many thanks to Rick DiPrato with Delta Breeze Records for taking the time to talk to me. And that's our program. To hear the extended music version of this show, go to the Episode 9 page at VinylSnob.com. And don't forget, we feature pictures of all our interview segments on those same episode pages. Along with helpful links on the Recommendations page, free domestic shipping on all Vinyl Snob gear at the store, and Vinyl Snob Radio, one-hour DJ shows featuring many of the artists interviewed here on the Pantheon Network curated and hosted by yours truly, and of course, all from vinyl. If you have any questions about vinyl records or stereo equipment, we'd be happy to look into it. Drop me an email, dave at vinylsnob.com. If we use it in the show, we'll send you a Vinyl Snob t-shirt and tote bag, and you can watch heads turn the next time you walk into the record store. Vinyl Snob is produced at the studios of Post Audio in Sacramento, California. Executive producers Dana Barry and our theme music composed by Cameron Robbins. I'm Dave Whitaker. Thanks for listening. Vinyl Snob is produced by DIY and How and is part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Vinyl Snob is written by Dave Whitaker. All commentary and opinions are that of the host. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Playlists can be found at Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rockandrollarchaeology.com for more information.